Meanwhile, recorded live in the Lava Lamp Lounge, it's somewhere in between a radio zine. News, music, culture, stories, and more. This show is what we make of it, and hopefully you'll join us in the fun, too. Now let's get started. And welcome to a show that I'm really excited about. It's issue 43, the Michael Cassett interview, part one. In my continuing efforts to track down and make sense of a TV show that I watched as a child and now have extreme fondness for, I have been on a bit of a quest to interview some of the creators and people that worked behind the scenes. And uh, there's probably uh, no better person to talk to than uh, the story editor for Max Headroom, um, Mr. Michael Cassett himself, who spoke a little bit in our previous interview where we had a panel discussion with the uh, three primary creators, but here's a taste of just him one-on-one so that we can get a little more intimate and a little more detail about his life, uh, his career, and the things he's worked on. So, here it is with my wonderful co-host, Heather Zykowski, helping me out. For our, our listeners at home, we have uh, Michael Cassett here uh, on the program, who uh, is a, a writer uh, and um, a TV producer, uh, uh, among other things. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you so much for, for joining us. No, I'm happy to be here. So uh, always happy to meet uh, Max Headroom fans and uh, writing fans in general. So uh, yeah, what do you need to know? Mm. How can I disabuse you of uh, fantasies and uh, <laughs> illusions? Do you want the polite answer or the truth? Well, the first question that we had for you, because Austin and I are both radio people, is we saw in some of our Googling around online that your first job after college was working in radio. And what we'd like to know is what kind of show did you do? Yeah, I was almost done with uh, college uh, in Tucson, Arizona, and uh, they had a very enlightened policy at the University of Arizona in the 70s. Is that code for something? Where the PBS station on the campus, the writer, producer, directors were uh, faculty members, which made sense, and a couple of just professional engineers, but the crew was students. They're all so mean. They're kids. So we were working on all kinds of fantastic things. I was the camera operator for a six-hour live telecast on national PBS. All right, Mr. PBS, you got me. Things like that. So I, I had all this kind of broadcasting experience in that sense, and I had done a lot of audio for live things, city council meetings. And so I was able to move into a, a, a fellow graduate was had been doing some part-time work at a station, and he was leaving and just said, uh, hey, would you be interested in this? And, uh, and the rest is history. It was a low-power daytime station, and I stayed there for three years. I had a, a real good time. I made absolutely no money. I would expect nothing less. <laughs> I was horrifically low-paid, but I got to do everything. After about a year, I, they made me the program director and operations manager, so I was playing rock and roll and dealing with personalities, all of them were older than me. You run this place all by yourself? Some of them very quirky, uh, but did that for like three years and had a great time. My legacy is that I probably have some hearing loss and a couple of frequencies. Marge, I went to thousands of heavy metal concerts and it never hurt me. 
thanks to just sitting there with headphones playing the hits of the 70s, uh, very loud. Well, turn it up, man! <laughs> right. Yeah, we, we um, benefited uh, in our in our era of going, we got to get uh, free concert tickets from time to time. Was that ever a part of your, your uh, um, uh, um, uh, gravy train? Oh, yeah. I saw everybody who came through Tucson in those days. I mean... You know, for example, and, and uh, you know, being in radio, you kind of had at least a certain amount of cashier entree. So I remember going to a party that Linda Ronstadt had. She was Tucson native, so when she came back for uh, a big concert, it was a big deal. And I remember talking to her boyfriend at the time, who was Albert Brooks. The comedian. Your last Thanksgiving, while you people were celebrating, I was down to my last bit. <laughs> I ignore all those times to write more signs, and I'll tell any young comedians watching, if you get down to the last 20%, it's as good as nothing. Okay, now look, I think there's more inside of me. There has to be more bits in here. It's just at this time in my life, it's so deep that I'll do injury to myself to go in and get it. <laughs> just standing there watching uh, Linda, who was not actually, did not actually engage very much with the people at, at uh, the party other than her family members, but she was singing uh, old mariachi songs with the mariachi band. And I'm standing there talking to, uh, you know, Albert Brooks, whom I knew as a stand-up and a comedian from television, basically, so... Uh, are you Mr. Brooks? You know, that kind of thing. So those things were a ton of fun. I mean, it would be everything from Lionel Richie to Olivia Newton John to, well, Elton John, things like that. So yeah, it was a ton of fun. That's so cool. Just had no money, and then no, no future. Now remember when we said there was no future? Well, this is it. <laughs> That's a lot of the rock and roll story. It helped me make the transition from getting out of school, not having anything, to three years down the line having some experience. Rock and Roll Radio. Stay tuned for more rock and roll. I was reading around that I think you had your first story published when you were 20 in Amazing Science Fiction magazine, if I'm not mistaken. Announcer Mitch here. The story was titled A Second Death and can be found in the June 1974 issue. Was this something that you had been wanting to do uh, growing up? Or you were like, ah, oh, I want to try to get some short fiction published. Or, or how did how did you kind of uh, fall into... Um, the, uh, the I, I mean, a lot of young writers do this where they start getting short fiction published as a bridge to the next part of their career. Um, I never thought of fiction writing as like a bridge to another career. I always thought that was the, a pretty cool career. Sure, that would be nice. But even at a young age, say 18, I was pretty hip to the idea that it wasn't necessarily a way to make a living. You get paid, but you don't get paid. We get paid. <laughs> I mean, I, I was fairly canny about publishing even then, and I'd read a lot. And for someone who grew up in basically a small town in Wisconsin, I, you had access to things that said, no, chances of me making a 
say even writing science fiction or anything was going to require a lot of work. I'd always wanted to write, but I was happy to write journalism. I was happy to be a broadcaster, which to me seemed to be accessing the same part of my mind. Well, this is fun. I had wanted to start writing even when I was in high school and started submitting stories to the science fiction magazine, some of which are still around and still per perfectly capable of publishing stories by people who are 17 or 18 if they want to. The more you know. Uh, got my first rejections and then wrote a story in my first semester at school, a short story that I sent off and heard nothing about for about a year and a half and then read in a sort of a fan magazine about the science fiction world that here the story is scheduled for publication this summer and amazing stories and oh there was mine and literally about two days later i got notification from the publisher and got a you know like some 20 dollar check or something now it seems you've graduated to the big time which is a confirmation again that this was really not a way to make a living mm -hmm. um <laughs> <laughs> so uh on the other hand i was also doing a little even when i was in radio i did a little uh, work for the my former pbs station hmm. and they were they were just as bad it isn't true Oh, tell me it isn't true. I mean, I was I was literally writing some variety show, one of those kind of evening talk shows. Mm. The pay was a pittance, and it was late all the time. It's a hell of a combination. <laughs> so, uh. <laughs> this is one of those things where, as somebody who's uh, tried my hand at being an amateur musician and done a little bit of writing here and there. It's relieving to hear that my experience is reflected in people who do it professionally. <laughs> We're all in this together. My experience is that everybody, no matter what their level of ultimate like success or getting getting beyond getting paid a pittance and very late, um, is that everybody went through it. Everybody, everybody I know has gone through some horrible Darwinian experience that uh, either. Uh, drives you out of it or you just somehow get through it it sounds depressing when you say it that way you know you look at you know someone like me who's actually made made it work for 40 years um think oh yes you know it, it does work i am well aware it's like omaha beach you know this is like the opening of band of brothers mm -hmm. most people don't get through it right um and i have great sympathy and affection for you know people who we're trying the same things I was doing at the same time and just decided to wave off or got swept away or, or whatever. Here's to the losers, bless them all. I also have friends who are contemporaries who are far more successful, so there is that. <laughs> yeah, another experience I think we all relate to. On the topic of writing, what's your specific process or some elements of it? You know, I think my process has always been just fairly straightforward and very common. I'm, I'm as a, a writer, I'm a huge believer in regular hours. It's not a business, but you, you do have to have business-like aspects to it. Mm -hmm. I mean, right now and for 25 years, my writing process, my schedule has been five days a week, start at nine in the morning, write a certain amount till about 11.30, take a two hour break, come back and work in the afternoon from 2.30 to 4.30. You'll have to work 
on that schedule, I will, if I'm writing fiction, I will write four pages at minimum a day. If I'm writing a script, probably five. I've been known to divide my work day and work on fiction one part of the day and nonfiction another part of the day. And this is just something I evolved. I mean, I, I have friends who they only write at midnight or something like that. And, uh, so God bless them. I mean, I'm I, 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 sure, sure it works. I'm not a big believer in, in trying to, although I have, I have had the wonderful experience of having some, like a short story just appear in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, the most successful short story I ever, ever did. I literally, I got a book one night or I'd gotten a book as a present. I was flipping through it and saw a picture one night. I thought, oh, that's an interesting thing. And it was a paragraph of text. Next morning in the shower, I decided, oh, there's a short story in that. Hmm. I went to my day job, which was CBS at the time. Just kind of thought about it a little bit. Just by then I'd probably written 15 or 20 short stories. It wasn't an unusual process. Came home that night, sat down at seven. And by nine, 9.30, I had written this 10 page story that I sold immediately uh, and has been reprinted like seven or eight times. Nice. Um, it's clearly my most wow. successful story. It was just like, it was sort of like it was just there and just circling in the universe and landed on me. You've, you've earned it. On the other hand, I've you know, worked on stories that have taken, I mean, I, I have a story in my files that is about to be done that I can find its origins in some notes I made and some first few paragraphs I wrote on teletype paper at a radio station in Tucson, Arizona in 1978. And by God, this story is almost ready to go. It's gotten long. It's taken a lot of twists and turns, but it's it's still that story from 42, 43 years ago. So that kind of covers the uh, spectrum, I think. Oh, that's fantastic. That's just fascinating. Thank you. And that's also inspiring for people who save everything as well and think that like, oh yeah, someday I want to do something with that thing that I that I that I worked on 20 years ago, you know, like it's yeah. it's good to know that you, these things do have lives of their own that can come back to. Uh, you know, it goes around, comes around. Yes, I mean the there is a danger and it's interesting that you raise that because what I what my hobby has been the beginning of this year is purging my old files. Think of it like spring cleaning. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> and I can tell you any set of credits you've ever seen from me is only represents a third or a quarter of the stuff I've written. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially in television, I have a, a huge number of busted projects. I mean, things that I was developing. I mean, that, that's true of anybody in television and sure. film. That went nowhere fast. And I decided that they're just taking up space. I have all these old scripts from 1983 or 1992. Those were the good old days. <laughs> what are you talking about? There weren't any. Nobody uses Brad's to bind things anymore. Things have <laughs> been in Adobe PDF for 20 years. Uh, rusted paper clips. Mm-hmm. And they're just paper. And so what I've done is I've been going through and, and purging the files. And that's it's scanning. Uh, like, I, I, like four drafts of some script I wrote for some producer in 1994. First of all, I actually can, I still have some scripter files. Announcer Mitch here. Scripter was the first ever screenwriting software developed by Stephen Greenfield and Chris Huntley and first on the market in 1982. Because of the easy to use interface 
and that there were both Mac and PC versions of the software, it became the industry standard in television and film, and even won an Academy Award for Technical Achievement in 1994. This program eventually evolved into Movie Magic Screenwriter, one of the many products released by Stephen and Chris. Their software is still the industry standard for scripts in Hollywood, but they now offer a number of other pieces of software, too, for all your film and television writing needs. No, they are not a sponsor of the show, but if they would like to be, I'm available. Hint, hint. That will work because I have the older movie magic and the newer movie magic script software that will convert. And, right. you know, if I ever want to you know, reconstruct it in that, all the other drafts. But I also have been asking myself why. That's a very good question. <laughs> um, so I kind of take my preferred draft and scan that and mm -hmm. keep the electronic files. And I've gotten rid of all this paper. And I was telling a friend of mine, a longtime friend of mine, this. And this will be name drop number one. It's, that friend's name is George R. R. Martin. He was horrified. He was raging at me. What's wrong with you? You know, why can't you, why can't you just give all those old old scripts and stories and and things to a university? And I just, you know, I just laughed. I said, "What university, George? I mean, you know, they want yours. They, they don't want mine. And by the way, I'm, I have the significant material, just in electronic form." Just, well, yes, the, the, the cloud, the cloud could die. And there you are. I said, you know, I've got, you know, I've got it in, you know, there's a keychain. It's like on a laptop, a keychain and in the cloud. Mm -hmm. I figure one of those is likely to survive. And if it, the world gets to the point where they don't survive, my archive is not of importance because it means an asteroid has hit us or I don't know, Trump came back and became president number 47. I don't oh, know. Please don't write that story. Whatever sort of ridiculous uh, yeah. um, scenario would play out. So yes, but I, what I still have been doing is keeping the story notions yeah. um, because who knows when I want to go back. But part of my, part of the mindset is also, especially with the scripts and some of these great concepts and pilots and specs I wrote, it's like just, I'm done with them. It's not going back to these TV things to right. say, oh no, in this world, this, no, I'm just not. It's like, I'm looking forward, not looking back. Right. But that's just me because I just burned myself on that. It's time for you to relax. Well, since you, you mentioned uh, uh, George Martin, I, I, I think if I'm not mistaken, you guys worked on Twilight Zone together. Is that how you guys met? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Actually, no, we had met through the science fiction field, you know, going to conventions. That makes sense. That makes sense. That's so cool. Because after my first story, I'd gone on and sold some other stories. I had a novel in progress. And I I would go to the occasional, like the Science Fiction Writers of America Nebula Awards. The Nebula Awards are put on every year by the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. Started by Damon Knight, the SFWA has held the Nebula Awards every year since 1966. And to keep with current publishing trends, there are now eight different categories at the awards. Hand in hand with the Hugus, the Nebula Awards recognize the best works of science fiction or fantasy published in the United States, and through the work of the SFWA, they help advocate for change in the publishing industry, promoting author-friendly copyright law and fair contract terms. He knew who I was, I knew who he was, and we'd probably exchanged a few words. I was a fan of his short work he was winning all kinds of awards right. 
but I didn't know him particularly well, but I did know him. But I walked into Twilight Zone one day early in 1986, having written a couple of freelance episodes. I think I was coming into pitch hmm. for the new year or coming in to drop something off. And there he was sitting literally on the uh, couch in the office. Hey, what's happening? Hey, not much. How you doing? He had also done some freelance that first year and had just been hired as the staff writer, mm. which is the lowest of the low on the show. <laughs> and I was freelancing. On any given show, a staff writer is the lowest position you can hold, usually in a probationary capacity. There will often be at least a couple staff writers in any given writer's room, if there is one. A freelance writer is not even on staff, but a freelance script could wind up being produced, if it was actually good. And then in the, when they renewed it for second season in spring, like May 1986, uh, George was promoted to story editor and I was hired to replace him. <laughs> so the two lowest level writers on Twilight Zone in 1985-86 were me and George R. R. Martin. It's a hell of a combination. And we had, we had some various adventures. And then George and I also, uh, we're kind of swept along to Max Headroom. Come with me, and you'll be in a world of... Edison Carter, coming to you very much live and direct on Network 23. George didn't get anything produced that year or ever. You know, Max had its kind of two, had its renewal after its spring 87. Right. George was busy on Beating the Beast. I knew then, as I know now, she would change my life forever. So he did a freelance episode for it, but but he lived in LA and lived near me for, well, certainly from 1985 to probably well into the 90s. He was probably half here and half in Santa Fe. How can somebody be in two places at once? That makes sense. So we were, we yeah, became buddies then and hung out a lot. So. You just heard part one of our conversation with Michael Cassett, the story editor on Max Headroom, and of course, one of the writers on The Twilight Zone, among many other things. He's a published novelist and so on and so on. Writes some nonfiction as well. Why not visit the show notes on this particular episode, betweenradiozine.com. And you'll find a link to a video of this conversation where you can actually watch Michael's responses in real time. And, of course, enjoy it at your leisure. Thank you. that's going to do it for us this week here on the program. Somewhere in between, a radio zine. The Michael Cassett interview. Part 1. Issue 43. Contained, The Michael Cassett interview. Part 1. Written by Heather Zykowski and Austin Rich. Featuring a conversation with the story editor, writer, novelist, and TV producer, Michael Cassett. Any wannabe and amateur writers out there who are inspired by Michael to put finger to keyboard and create something magical, I would only ask 
that you stop working on, say, a series of detective stories set in the world of Max Hedrum. I only ask because I'm already 15 pages in, and I'd rather not change things up this late in the game. This episode was produced by Austin Rich in the Lava Lamp Lounge and was assembled using only the finest in 20th century technology. In the long-standing tradition of most zines, there is an open submission policy here. If you have a story or music, poetry, or maybe you just like to send in something that you read, or maybe you want to be a part of the show, I don't know. I can't read your mind. But you can always submit something or drop us a line here at austinrich at gmail.com, and I will happily take a look. That's going to do it for us this week. You guys are wonderful. You guys are beautiful. Without you, there would be no program. Be seeing you somewhere.